Hi, and welcome everyone to RQM Plus Live number 55. Uh, this is called, Is Your Labeling Thrice As Big As Your Device Yet? My name is Stephen Bernacki. I'm Marketing Principal at RQM Plus, and I'm going to quickly introduce RQM Plus and today's panelists, then we'll jump into the session. So RQM Plus is the largest international provider of regulatory quality and clinical consulting services for medical device and diagnostics manufacturers. Uh, and this is RQM Plus Live, our bi-weekly live show. Uh, that gives you access to our seasoned experts who answer your questions about industry topics and challenges. So if you have any questions today, definitely ask them. Uh, you can do that by use, looking at the questions panel and clicking submit after you type them in. So without further delay, I'm going to get right into today's panel. The first up, we have Nancy Morrison, who's Executive Director of Regulatory and Quality Consulting Services. Nancy has RAC certifications for the U.S. and EU. Uh, she leads our MDR and IVDR leadership councils, and she has over 30 years of experience in regulatory leadership and management roles. Next up, we have Ed Ball, who's our Intelligence and Strategic Execution Manager. Ed's a chartered engineer with expertise in risk management, EMDR, MDSAP, design controls, and post-market surveillance. Uh, he's worked for the UK's competent authority and within industry. Ed is currently an active member of the UK's technical committees for medical device quality management, uh, risk management, and symbol standards. Uh, he's been working with and reviewing labeling and IFU as part of incident investigations, uh, new product development, and lifecycle management throughout his career. Uh, our third panelist is Kevin Go, project engineer. Uh, Kevin is a certified quality auditor. He has his RAC certification and came to RQM Plus from the FDA, where he worked as a policy advisor for CDRH Innovation in the Payer Communication Task Force, as well as being a TPLC lead reviewer in the Office of Orthopedic Devices. And our final panelist is Lori Pettit, Principal Advisor at RQM Plus. Lori has a PMP certification and 13 years of regulatory affairs experience. She provides project management for multi-work stream projects related to MDR, including comprehensive project charters, deliverables, metrics, and overall project program updates. And she develops and leads teams to execute on time and achieve MDR certification for class one through class three products. Uh, lastly, our moderator today is Lisa Kassaman, who's Executive Vice President at RQM Plus. And with all that said, Lisa, please take it away. Okay. Thanks, Steve. I have to uh, thank Jay Cuddy for this uh, title this week of this session, because thrice was not in my vocabulary, I have to admit, before this week. So, great one. Okay, so what do we mean by labeling? Let's, let's just start there and frame our discussion. Nancy, can you give us that? Sure. So if we go with the definition of label from the MDR, it talks about any written, printed, graphic information appearing on the device, on the packaging, or on the packaging of multiple devices. So that's the label. Then it, the MDR goes on to describe the instructions for use um, that provides information to inform the user of a device's intended purpose and proper use and any precautions. When we talk labeling, what we really mean is any label that's on the device, any label that's on the package of the device, the instructions for use, and now it gets a little more complex. If you have an implant, you, you might have an, a patient implant card or the PIC as it's sometimes called for short, and accompanying the PIC will be the pill, the patient information leaflet that contains all the other information from Article 18 that's required. And I like to include the SSCP in that as well because that's a public document. And you know, that's a whole nother layer of level, another level of labeling that people now have to comply with. So what kind of issues are you all seeing, especially resulting from MDR implementation and all the new labeling they have to consider? So I'll defer to my EU colleagues on the specifics, but I'll say I think the 
the EU, the issues from the EU MDR implementation is kind of wide reaching. And even when I was in FDA, we saw some of the ripple effect of some of these legislation changes or regulatory changes. So when I was with FDA, I was part of the MR working group. And all of a sudden we started seeing all these not evaluated devices come in with MR labeling. And we're like, what is going on? Like, why are all these companies changing this where they don't even need to? And finally we asked them and they said, oh, we're just getting ready for EU MDR because now all of these implants need MR labeling. So since we're a global company, we have to get ahead of it. And we just saw an uptick in these types of submissions at FDA related to these MDR labeling changes. Yeah, I think you know, things that we've seen too is, you know, as Nancy was saying, with the introduction of the pick and the pill, you know, a lot of a lot of clients and companies are are wondering how in the world do we implement that? Where does it fit in the box? How do we do it? What if we have a small box? How do we get it in there? There's a heck of a lot of information on there that needs to be provided, and it can be in a very very small space. So we see issues with that. We see issues with um, pre-printed pre-printed boxes. You know, Nancy's talking about the types of labeling. If you're putting symbols or warnings or, or anything like that, CE mark on your on your actual boxes, then that becomes part of your labeling. And I think sometimes that gets lost. You know, people are they forget about that. There's a disconnect when there was a design process with with the packaging for the for the for the device. So um, you know, things like that 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 you kind of have to have this this full picture of of all of your all of your labeling and where you could possibly have put symbols or or, or warnings or anything like that. And another point from the from an MDR implementation and an IVDR implementation is the the language requirements across all of the the, re, the relevant countries in which the product is marketed and making sure that you've got the languages that are required and then that obviously the languages are validated in terms of the translations and the consistency of all the information across and that requirement for like pro product descriptions and intended users and intended purpose and all those kind of things has caused a few manufacturers problems because it's text that they've never had before and they're having to look at branding versus product descriptions and then how to actually whether that's sufficient to identify the product and its intended use on the labeling yeah i think if i go back to just the fundamentals you know people tend to ignore their labeling right it was it was good enough and i ignored it and that was a manufacturing problem so it never got a lot of attention or a lot of resources to make it the most effective or efficient it can be um, so we see as new regulations come on the first approach is always oh i'll just add another sticker i'll add another label to the box can i just put a sticker on my ifu with the you know, with this other information I need. And so what we saw starting out is it wasn't just about adding the MDR symbols and the MDR language to the labeling. It really was, I had a fundamental problem with my label to begin with, because it was piecemealed over the years. And so I, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just how do I get this pick in the box, it was, gosh, why do I have eight stickers on my box right now? Like that cannot be the most effective way to manufacture a product. And so I think a lot of people, you had to touch every single label because every single label needed a medical device symbol. And that was new. So if I have to touch every single label, you know, it's hard to start that process without starting it from a clean slate of, and doing a full label review instead of just a, let me add this new symbol. Yeah. And, and from a manufacturing perspective, 
the implementation has brought into play lots of considerations around rundown of stock and then timing that rundown of stock and not having too much scrap and waste versus getting the, the MDR, IVDR compliant labeling in IFUs out at the point where they want to claim conformity to the to the regulation. So that's been an interesting challenge for operations teams around the globe. I think. Yeah, I think in this transition too, we've seen that where people need to remove the CE mark. You know, they built up stock, put that in their EU inventory, and then they still need to make man product for other parts of the globe, but they can't CE mark it because they don't have the MDR certification and their certs may be expiring or going to expire. So they're they're managing that multiple inventory. Yeah, I think, you know, to what Nancy was saying too about, you know, over the years, you just added an additional sticker, right? It's like, oh, we've had this change. We'll stick this on here. You start to run out of real estate on your box. And then, you know, you run into that. Are you covering up something else that's probably just as important? Well, if it's going to be on your box, it is important, right? But I mean, if it's, you know, you start to cover that up and you start to lose lose the white space that you need as well on in, in your labeling. And it just, it kind of goes to that whole, what, Nancy was saying at the beginning is like, do you just start over and completely revamp your labeling from the ground up to incorporate all of these changes over the years, right? And and get it all compliant and consistent. So, uh, audience question back to Nancy's first description of labeling: Does labeling expand into the website content? It does, and in a couple different regions. So in Annex 1 of the regulation, it talks about the information you provide on your device and how to use it and how to ensure safe. And it says, if you have a website, you must add that um, information to your website and you must maintain it. And that's added, I think, a whole new level of complexity because as you think about those transition times, normally there's a phase in date and a phase out date. You might have made a device change, you know, design change that impacts the labeling. How do you get all those labeling labels on your website and make it really easy for your customers to access that? And that's been a struggle to validate some of those software systems and do human factors testing to see if customers really can find it. Um, and not just on your IFU, but also on like the patient information leaflet and an implant card that has to be on the website as well under article 18 um, so you got to be careful of that but it's also fda i think kevin you can probably speak to this kind of has taken the stance that anything on your website you know accompanies the product because your product label has your company website and so therefore that makes the website subject to all those reviews that FDA does. Right. And just because, yeah, I guess it's viewed in the whole back of this part of your collateral is your website. And even though you don't necessarily need to submit your marketing material for a 510K, I think you better believe that FDA, well, most FDA reviewers would probably be looking and Googling your device. And that's what I did when I was a reviewer. And now, even now when we're prepping clients to go in, one of the things that we do is we look at their website and say, do you have any claims on here? Are you making any, uh, you know, unclear statements are you like changing intended use like we know we do a website review now to prep them going in because fda does look at your website when you do a marketing submission even if it's a 510k mm -hmm. i mean i mean to to kevin's point right i worked for a company that they didn't they didn't consider their website as part of their labeling and there was contradictions and conflicts from what was in the ifu to what was being claimed on the website 
So I mean, you're opening yourself up to huge compliance risk there, especially if, like Kevin said, FDA or any other you know, authority is going in and checking out your website if it's in your documentation, right? So you need to be very consistent about you making sure that you're you're matching everything up and, and anywhere that you may have any kind of claims or any types of labeling that you're consistent. Or even if you have device features that are only uh, approved in another country like Europe, right? FDA will say, hey, why, why do you have this feature? And they're like, oh, please add like an asterisk to say like it's all not sold in the US or something, or it's only for like clinical use in the US or something. So like, not even just claims, but even like device features, FDA is kind of picky about. So that leads right into our, our next question as to as long as your labeling is compliant, you know, you know, you might have 10 labels on the box, but as long as it's compliant, why should anyone care and consider starting from scratch? <laughs> I, yeah, one of the things I see, right, is everything just gets added. And, and this goes to the IFU too, right, where you, every time there's a lawsuit legal says add this disclaimer add this warning add this right every time you go through another regulatory process you know you add another one every time you do your risk management you say oh i have this residual risk let me add it to my labeling um but we know that the more you have in there right it, it doesn't become more clear what the issues are it just becomes cloudier and harder to interpret and i think from a manufacturing standpoint you're much more likely to make a mistake if you have to get eight labels on that box in eight different locations and not cover another one up so you're talking rework you're talking scrap you're talking the cost of the labels you're talking the cost of the testing to confirm those labels are legible throughout the life cycle of the device it it really does there is a cost to all of that and and the quality cost i think can get quite high if you're you know yes you may be compliant yes you may get your regulatory authorization because you do meet all the requirements but you still should be nice to your manufacturing people <laughs> right yeah i mean we've seen that we've seen that with a client with the cost right that when when you're in it it's not only a cost a, material cost of having to make those changes, but it's a cost to your project timeline as well, right? We've seen that with a client where, you know, they've they've started down that path of MDR and they've started updating those labels and they've recognized that, oh, wait a minute, there are more labels than we thought we had. And now we are gonna go back in and we're gonna make the changes to eliminate the inconsistencies and the duplications. So now we've just added, you know, four months to a timeline that we didn't have before. So it's, it impacts the business across the board, not just from a regulatory perspective or a materials cost, but as far as your entire project is concerned. So I think it's best to, you know, you build that labeling strategy in the beginning. And if it means that you do have all of those duplications and all of those inconsistencies, that you address that at the beginning and just and fit that into to your project plan and how are you going to address those and try to eliminate that cost that's a surprise, you know, eight months into your project when you actually come to updating your labeling. Yeah, I think it's important too to look at not just the product you're looking at, but your whole portfolio, because we have yeah. seen that, right? I, I go in, lead with my strategic ones, and I've got those labels and they're just perfect and they're resized appropriately. <laughs> and then, 
And then you come back and you've got another product that needs four more warning statements or symbols and I don't have enough room on the label and I've got to do it. So one of the things that I like when we can work with clients and go through their entire label portfolio and pull out every single symbol that's going to be used and then say, worst case, what does my label look like? So I start with, you know, a big enough footprint that I, I'm going to be able to accommodate all my products, not just the one I'm starting with. And to dovetail Lori's point about misalignment and discrepancies between labeling, compliance, I guess, is compliance specific to your countries, right? So what's compliant with maybe EU may not necessarily be compliant with FDA. And what we've seen for some of these larger companies that they have maybe have two, two different, say, like two different search, like IFUs, right? And then FDA says, hey, please update, like very end of the review, 510K, FDA says, we're going to clear this, but make this labeling change and the company's so excited for clearance like oh yeah whatever we'll just make this change and they make it and it just keeps getting incrementally changes and all of a sudden after like three versions these two ifus have like different intended uses different contraindications completely misaligned you're like wait a second how did we get here and it takes so much effort now to realign this on both fronts so mm -hmm. like having those constant reviews i think helps a lot to address some of those discrepancies and some of the, the inconsistencies, I think, like, like you just said, Nancy, it's only when you individually, they may be com seen as compliant or they may have even deemed be to be compliant. But it's only when you look at them side by side and you go, hang on, that one has a temperature range of this, but this one has a temperature range of this. And that one has that warning symbol, but they're all the same product, really, technically, they're all in the same family. So why are they different? And it's only when you look at it from that helicopter view, that bigger picture view, that you start to see those kind of things. Yeah, and we've had trouble extracting even that information, right? Because it's stored in so many different systems and or it's in the DHFs that, you know, haven't been touched and they've evolved for, for various reasons that, you know, even figuring out, you know, what is that temperature range? What's the operating conditions for this device can be pretty tricky. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a, an interesting st strategy perspective in terms of who owns the labeling and who owns the labeling content and actually managing where that content comes from within your design process, within your regulatory processes, from your lifecycle management process, et cetera. And lastly, and most importantly to me, the risk management process, where does it come from? Where Where's the information coming from? And to Kevin's point, actually, if you only ever change the label, then that's where you get that that diversion of content and diet. But if you go back to the actual design documentation, the design specification, the label specification or strategy, then that's where you can make your changes and then implement it into your actual labeling rather than try and always make your changes at the end of it. And then you do end up with lots of inconsistencies and diver divergences of content and then causes problems. Yeah, to what Ed was saying, right? You, you you think it's kind of intuitive that who's who's updating the label, who's responsible for content, right? But it's actually it's a real problem. I mean, we've I've worked with a couple clients and with some companies where I, you know, when I when I was in industry that it's not clear to the rest of the organization who's designing the label, who's responsible for content. So that's it's something that is needs to be part of that labeling strategy, right? Not not only to identify what you're going to do, but who's going to do it and who's responsible for it? Because it's not always clear to everybody in the organization. Engineering doesn't always know who does the actual label update. They know that you know regulatory is probably 
responsible for making sure it's compliant, but who's actually doing the work, who's actually putting it on the label, and who's making those decisions right down to packaging, manufacturing, regulatory, everybody, right? There needs to be a consistent um, plan that everybody can, re can refer to to say who's doing what part of the labeling. And is it kind of like a hot potato? I don't want to own that. No, nobody wants it. That's the thing about labeling, right? Nobody wants that responsibility to say, I decided that this goes on the label. Nobody wants that. And nobody wants it documented. But it's important for it to be documented so that you know what your process is. A lot of people don't know their process. I will say, I wish before I went to FDA, I had to do an update to a labeling because I think coming into the consulting side is the probably the biggest headaches I've had trying to move labeling. It's like moving the earth, trying to get a little bit labeling. And when I was on the FDA side, I was like, oh, it's just like a wording. The company can do this by end of day today. And I'd say like, hey, hey company, please change this labeling by end of day and then send it back to me so we can get this cleared. And I was like, oh, not a big deal, they're just changing it. But now when I get those requests on the outside, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'd get everyone involved. I gotta get marketing, I gotta get legal. I gotta get, like everyone needs to touch this document. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I similar examples from from F, from from your FDA experience to my MHRA experience, and speaking to colleagues, former colleagues who've moved into industry, and trying to say what kind of advice would we give to ourselves back then, or to the, the people at MHRA now, and it's like, just be mindful of the the power that you wield, even if you're not aware of it. Just be, you need to be aware of it because you if you say, oh, you need this risk control, you need to put this warning in, the manufacturers. They know that they'll they'll do it because you tell them to do it, but then you can't expect them to just do it and do it within the day, like you say, Kevin. Because especially for the bigger companies where you've got multiple departments involved in the labeling process and the approval process, you've then got stocks involved, you've got different registrations globally where that and, and it's it can take ages. But as an individual regulator, you you're just focused on this is what I'm concentrating on right here, right now. My first six months, I think, on the side was just emailing FDA friends, being like, please <laughs> understand how hard it is to change labeling. Stop asking it same day turnaround. And I guess how things fall through the cracks, right? Because I just do this and then on the company side, like, okay, we'll just do it and we'll like fix it on the back end, right? Let's make the change so FDA is happy. And then once we get cleared, we'll update all our documents. And you don't update your documents. And then you have this change. It's just like undocumented. And then you just like have poor version controls. Yeah. That comes down to the cost piece as well, right? Like you were saying, it's, when FDA or any any authority wants you to make make a change, there's a there can be a huge cost impact to your labeling and your product, and then that hits your bottom line and everything. So there's there's that piece as well. There's the cost associated with it as well. It just it is a everyone think oh it's like you said Kevin you're just sticking a symbol on a on a label or you're adding something to a box. It's so much more convoluted and involved than that. You know it's just not straightforward ever. Hey. So before we move on to the how-to, I have a very specific labeling question from a startup that came in. So let's let's uh, help them out. So as a startup, we supplied our product to the EU under MDR as a custom-made device. We are now switching to mass manufacturing and therefore do not qualify as a CMD. Can we still supply our product with the same CMD labeling until the conformity assessment is completed or should we change our labeling? Well, if it depends on how you're selling it. If you're selling it as a custom-made device, then you should retain the custom-made label and it, it should be portrayed that way. If you're selling it 
and you're putting on a CE mark, then you need to comply with the full labeling and, you know, depending on the classification of the device, whether you even can before you get through uh, your certification process there. Yeah. I think that there's also that dividing line in terms of at what point are you switching from custom, the full custom made practices and custom made for an individual patient, switching to mass production, batch production. And yeah, you can't can't be labeling as one if you switch to the other already. It needs, there needs to be a clear line. Okay, next question. Um, okay, so as a manufacturer, I've listened to you guys say I believe you that um, I could save money and heartache in the long run if I overhaul my labeling. Where do I start? This is big. Like, what are what are some best practices you guys have encountered? Yeah, one of the nice things I've seen is is a labeling guidance, so that to Lori's point, people in the organization know who owns what, and then it starts with what is our position, what is our policy, which symbols do we use, when do we use them, how do we lay out our box, do we always put our symbols in the upper left-hand corner, do we always put our address in the lower right-hand corner. So just having that guide and that template is a big start because it helps you not forget stuff that you have to have on there that then leads to a second sticker that you add. Um, so I think, you know, I like the idea and I, I think it's worked out really well for us when we look at an entire portfolio at once and do that worst case scenario. What's everything that we might need to include? Um, work on that. And then have a good program manager that's driving the dates, right, Lori? <laughs> yeah. Someone's gotta hurt the cats, right? That's always that's always always key, you know. I but I mean, I'm partial to that from a from a PM perspective. I'm, you know, a cat herder by nature, I guess. I don't know. But um, I, I so kind of along the same lines that Nancy was talking about. I don't think it's a bad idea to start with the blank page. Remember, pretend you don't have a label, right? And just say this is the this is the classification of product we have. This is what it is. Do we have temperature restrictions? Do we have warnings on materials that we need to put on the labels? Do an inventory of what your product is, what symbols apply. Start with a blank page and start plotting it out. Figure out, do you always want your logo and your address in the same place? Do you always want your CE mark in the same place? And like Nancy said, you've got this holistic view now of your whole labeling portfolio. What's applicable to all products? Where should it go? Start with a blank. Start, you're not gonna, I think there's, you know, you don't want to offend anybody who's come before you that's designed a label, right? But changing regulations, there's things have been added, things need to be updated, things are duplicated, things are contradicting. So like Ed said, you've got temperature setting on this label and then you've got a temperature warning on another label that don't add up and they're on the same box, right? So you're creating confusion. So I would do an inventory, start with a blank page and just create a whole new label and see see if you're even close right if if what you have is even coming close to what you need to have and i'd go even further back than that and i from a design point of view i i want to know what the requirements are so building right. in from your, your design and development plan your regulatory strategy where are we going what markets and as you're going through understand okay well as a bare minimum i need this content on my product on my label on my packaging materials etc cetera, etc cetera. 
then as you know what your product is and you, you can find product specific standards, you can move on from looking at things like ISO 20417 and 15223 for the symbols and the information for use. And you can then go to your product specific standards and say, okay, well, this standard requires this information on the label. It maybe even includes information, marking, direct markings on the device, et cetera, and build that into your design control process, your design and development process, so that then as you then develop your, your specifications that meet that, that then dictates your content of your labeling. And then you get into the, yeah, the discussion around how you actually then design your labeling, what goes where and picking from defined um, solutions and, and like a, sort of like a, a buffet type thing we're like these are all the symbols that we use etc cetera, etc cetera, and and making sure that it's risk-based as well and understanding who the users are so not putting everything on every single piece of labeling but having that that labeling strategy and understanding the hierarchy of your labeling and understand what information is there and what information is for which user within the supply chain and then making sure it's in the right place for the appropriate user and that's not as easy to do if you start from what's there now. It's better to step backwards and then, as, as Laurie and Nancy have said, blank page, and that gives you a better framework to then say, right, who wants to know this? Who wants to know this? So what what are they going to see when they touch this product? Are they going to see the, the shipper, the carton, or the physical product? So. Ed, Ed, you're always so good at bringing us back to the standards. Do you, do you find that people are confused about what's really required? Well, so the, well, there's a couple of interesting points. So ISO 20417 came out last year, and it, it's not yet harmonized to either the MDR or IVDR, but it's still, it's the state of the art. It replaces um, EN 1041. And when you look at it in the black and white, it's it's very similar to what's in the MDR and the IVDR in terms of the types of stuff there. And it's very comprehensive. It echoes a lot of what's in the IMDRF guidance for labeling and the central principles. So it's there and I would consider it state of the art. Is it the easiest standard to follow? No, it's a bit confusing. And then there's lots of terms and because it because it's so broad, it's bringing in all sorts of things. It brings all the UDI stuff in, it brings in um, imported details and representatives. And obviously if you were trying to claim conformity to that one standard, that should apply to all the markets you're going in. So you've got to think about it for, well, do I have my Japanese authorized rep? Do I have this? Do I have that? Do I have, and where does it live? And so, it, and it, going back to the definition, that, so the definition used in the ISO standards is accompanying documentation is the, the term that's being used now. And that's everything as, as Nancy described, it is everything. And that includes the website, includes any information you put out that includes technical descriptions or technical manuals or service manuals, every, it's all part of, the yeah what in the US would just be described as labeling wouldn't it but it, from an ISO point of view it's referred to as accompanying documentation yeah. I think the other is sometimes the regulations or the standards people take them very literally right so they look at the 14971 they do their residual risk and they come back with a list of 100 or 150 residual risk and then you read the regulation and it says you must list all residual risk in your IFU and it, that's you know maybe you have a device that's really complex that does that but there's very few that don't come down to a handful of risk that you need to inform and so making sure that you align that risk management process to your labeling process, it, I think that 
people are still struggling with that. And those two groups have to talk to each other. Um, so it's clear. I like to use, I think actually FDA does a pretty decent job. If you look at like their de novo um, reclassification orders of defining what are those key risks. Or if you look at old advisory committee meetings, and I think MHRA has some information too on what are those key risks for your device. Those are really, you know, should align with your risk management as the key risk of the device, as your residual risk, as what goes in your IFU. And you don't have to say it 15 different ways. If there's 15 different ways for that failure to happen or that harm to come, you can say it once, right? It, and so learning how to, I, I always go back to if I were explaining it to a 10-year-old, how would I explain it to them? And that's kind of the, the level of, you know, residual risk or warning I want to put in my IFU. So I want people to understand it. I want them to connect directly with, oh, I understand what that's what that means. Yeah, and the yeah, but, FDA does have like a, I'm not, like an informal rule, I guess, for any of their public documents. So including like patient labeling or say like novo summaries. And they always say that you should write it at like a fifth grade level, which is a very low level. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly low level, but that's the that's the target that you're right, everyone can understand like the labeling or public documents. Yeah. We went through an we went through an exercise with the client when we were writing, Nancy will remember this because we did it together when we were writing the pill, that, that is the that's the requirement for the patient information leaflet because it's 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 patient facing, right? It has to be written at a language level that that is, is understandable and that's and that's what we had to hit and it, that's it's harder than you think to try to put all of that clinical information and technical information at at like a fifth grade reading level it's it's a really difficult exercise but i mean one that's one that's worthwhile but um very, lots of very short sentences i think is is what we came up with right Less, very short sentences small words less syllables Less yes, word the less better, right? right? Short paragraphs, not long paragraphs. Yeah, yeah. Short sentences, short words. Yeah, definitely, definitely helps. But Ed was talking about you. You touched on regulations and compliance for multiple countries, right? Because if you've got a global product, you're you're talking about, you know, not just the U.S. and not just Europe. So I'm I'm kind of have become a big advocate over the years of regional specific labeling and i know a lot of companies are like that's too expensive we can't go changing part numbers um we can't have a set of labels that are just for europe or just for the us or just for south america or just asia but when you think about it from from the perspective of cost again right if you've got a change in regulation in asia you only you're only then updating a subset of labels or a specific grouping of labels you're not updating every label that goes on every box for every product, right? So so I'm it's a little near and dear to my heart. What first company I ever worked for, we had regional labeling and that was when we started out small. And they they had the foresight to say, hey, we've got a limited size box. It's a small product. And if we if we do grow globally, we're gonna have a lot of requirements. So they went with global um regional part numbers regional specific ifus regional specific labeling right from the get-go and i'm a huge advocate for that spend the time consider the cost the cost alternatives to actually have regional labeling see I'm a small box. 
I'd, I'd advocate almost the opposite, just because from a, <laughs> it's really hard to, you know, now I, if I make a change, I have to go change five labels, right? If, uh, you know, I, I can argue both sides. The other thing though, I think is really nice is that as IFUs become more electronic and less physical paper in the box, that it does offer some more opportunities that makes it easier for people to navigate and a little easier to to maintain. It, yeah. But uh, I hear you one, on the regional. Yeah, which one's yours, Ed? Which one would you pick? Well, um, somewhere in the middle, I guess. Just to, you know. <laughs> well, the specific example of Laurie's is a great example. Like if you've got a, a European product, that previously was C marked for the MDD or for the AMD or IVDD or whatever, and you're now going, right, okay, I'm going EU MDR, but I also sell into the UK and I also sell into Switzerland, but I'm a US-based manufacturer or I'm a Japanese-based manufacturer or Korean-based manufacturer. You've now got to put a UK responsible person mm -hmm. name and address on there and a symbol or whatever. You've got to put a Swiss representative right. and symbol on there. You've got to put the EU importer stuff on there. You've got to put the, if there's a different UK importer, if you're trying to follow the ISO 20417 for the UK product, you'd have to put a UK product, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you've got different UDIs for those different markets, then you'd have to distinguish the UDIs, not just with the UDI symbol, but with which region it was for. And yeah, so I think there's somewhere in the middle. And I think it comes back to that strategy and design process in terms of designing your label and maybe, and understanding what data is variable, understanding what data is consistent and, and static, and understanding what's static across the whole family or a portfolio and what's what's static, but only within certain groups and stuff, and, and then designing your label that way. And I think you could have regional sections and you could have global sections and, and, you know, and I it think, comes down to the whole design process. I think what we saw too with with Brexit and Swexit, right? I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, now that that's happened in two European countries, how long is it going to be before the other ones start to follow suit, right? So now you're going to have, you don't think so, Ed? You don't think other companies, <laughs> other countries will? Not for a while, no. Because yeah. the UK is making such a, a glorious example of how to do it. So. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to go there, but you know, yeah. I'll go how, there. How, it's a lesson in how not to do it, maybe, right? So we have a few audience questions I want to make sure we get to before we run out of time. All right, next one. Thinking globally, if I have to put the names and addresses of the local authorized reps for all of the countries on the label on my software device, is it compliant to put only a URL on the label, which leads to a website listing all my ARs, meaning that the information is not directly on the label? I don't think that would fly. Can't say that I've seen anybody try it, but usually when you log into the software, there's a home screen and that's where that information would live. Not, you know, not a, a link to something else because that presumes that you have that internet connectivity and, you know, unless your software is hosted outside, you know, I think it would be a hard argument to say that that's with the device or on the device. Interesting, but isn't that the same concept? Because I feel like labeling and software is a space where the regulations hasn't necessarily caught up with the technology. But I guess isn't that the same concept as an EIFU where you have a link to that? And I guess maybe with the authorized rep, it's slightly different, but isn't that the same concept where your your 
label actually, your labeling isn't provided with the device and you need to access a website to get it. Your labeling would be provided with the device, but your IFU wouldn't be. And it's so it's, it's understanding what information is required at which part of the documentation and who needs it. And so the identification of the importer and the authorized rep, they're, they're needed for the economic operators as well. And so that needs to be on the, the product. But yeah, I think I I would agree with Nancy that if it should be in that, yeah, that help page or that about page or, or whatever. That's a good question. All right, next one. Companies currently have barcoding slash data matrix for sharing of static and variable data for medical devices. How far away, how far away are we from utilizing barcoding to cover uh, common symbology translations and also legal manufacturer and economic operator addresses where there will be several to include in the UK, EU and Switzerland importation? I don't think we're close. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good vision and a nice, right, future state. Um, but I don't think it hits that, you know, readable information that really applies in the regulation for that stuff that has to be on the device or on the device packaging itself. I would agree. Nice to have. But I mean, it took us how long to get on board with EIFUs even, you know, just to have that electronic IFU available. So I agree. Great to have. Wonderful solution for all of the things that we've been talking about, right? But I don't think it's anything that's, I don't think that techno technology application is, is imminent in medical device, unfortunately. And would be immediately non-conforming with ISO 20417, where it requires all the information on the label to be in human readable format as well. Right. Okay. In the EU, since we are using symbols from ISO 15223, which is harmonized under MDR, no symbol glossary is needed in the IFU. Can we supply the same IFU to the US without the symbol glossary? Not if you want approved. <laughs> That's a requirement in the US. Now, I have seen that the one thing I will say I have seen work is a reference in the IFU to a symbols glossary on a website. And then on the website, a really nice symbols glossary with all the symbols that are used across the entire product portfolio. So in that regard, you know, that's one way, but it is still a pointer to the, the website where you've got that information. I don't know, I Kevin, would a... you let that go? No, no, <laughs> yeah, I completely agree, Nancy. I, I don't, I was trying to think if I've seen submission or have submitted without a symbols glossary and I don't think I have. But if you think about it from a theoretical point of view, the any symbol that's in 15.223 has been validated with from a usability point of view. So in theory, it's supposed to be understandable. And so it mm -hmm. shouldn't need to be defined. I'm not I'm not saying you shouldn't have a glossary. I'm just saying in theory the stand anything in that standard has been validated but then you there was an interesting take from certain notified bodies in the EU where they were saying well if it if it's not and this was in the gap between 15223 
the 2016 version was harmonized to the directives and then the the next version wasn't harmonized until when it was late last year early this year and it and there was this whole thing of like the symbol the symbols that were added to the 2016 version weren't harmonized and therefore they needed to be defined in all languages whereas the ones that were harmonized only needed to be defined in english or a primary language which to me doesn't that doesn't make sense if they're in the standard they've been validated so if your approach is you you, you provide a single language definition okay but it just because there's a harmony I, I just didn't get that under that interpretation but it was it was being enforced by certain notified bodies and was causing headaches yeah okay i, I guess some are pretty self-explanatory the temperature range the expiry mm -hmm. date but you know anyone that's ever tried to put something together from instructions that are just pictorial it, they may have validated those pictures but i never get them <laughs> well even i mean i think europe's leaps and bounds ahead of the us when it comes to the use of symbols right i mean you know you you see things from europe just washing instructions on your clothes it's all symbols now it's not you know hand wash cold water it's a range of symbols and if you're not used to them you know you don't even though they are validated and even though they are harmonized if you're not used to them you don't you don't know what they mean right so i i guess i see the point of of a glossary but but i agree you know that that's they've been validated they're usable yeah theoretically it'd be nice and we kind of talked about this in our last device live podcast where fda is probably trying to harmonize with other global standards but they still are fda and they like playing by their own rules and, make, and doing what they want to do, which I don't know, good and bad, I guess. Okay, last now, are you saying the FDA is not a team player? <laughs> no, I think they encourage collaboration. Now. Yeah. <laughs> last audience question: How do you overcome labeling requirements for products that are small in size? IVDs are notorious for this because they tend to be really small packages. Um, all your reagents and controls and things like that. It it's really it. I usually like to start with a map that says here's all the requirements and then start putting where do I put those requirements? Do I what can I put on the vial? Right? It may just need to be one symbol that you know gives you some indication. And then as the packaging goes up, right, as I put a hundred of those vials in a box, then I can put other things on the box. But there is, you know, fold out labels are one option. They're expensive and I don't, you know, they're hard to manu in manufacturing because they come apart sometimes. Um, but, you know, you really just have to to go with the bare minimum on the primary package in that case. Yeah, understand the requirements and and apply logic and a rationale mm -hmm. and if yeah. if you've got sensible logic and it make and it, it's it's there and there's you've considered risk you've considered usability you've considered the supply chain and the requirements from that perspective i think i would like to think that most regulators would take a common sense approach and say okay yes the requirement says this and we can see how you've met it with your justification and your implementation yeah. And I think FDA does have guidance too, especially for those devices that you need to put direct marking on for labeling, especially for those small ones, FDA does have a guidance that provides some outlines for me how to approach that problem. 
and and yeah, and to the, to that point in terms of direct marking, your rationale has to stand up and stay consistent. So you can't make an argument that says, "Oh, our product is too difficult to put direct marking on," and so the CE mark is on here, and then you put some branding on the product. <laughs> can't have okay. it both ways. Yeah. So to uh, wrap us up today, because um, we are over time. Last question. Um, what are the types of products or scenarios where you'd say, it's time, it's time to overhaul my labeling? And chances are any viewers of this show already know they're there. <laughs> but that's why they showed up. So, Nancy? Yeah, I think if, if, you, look, if you look at your labeling and it doesn't make sense, I, I really think this is a common sense. Like when I buy a package of, you know, pudding from the grocery store for it were labeled this way. And if the answer is no, you probably need to rehaul your labeling and make it, you know, and this is a great time. You gotta touch the label anyhow. You know, it really, you're gonna through, put it through your change control process once, make all the changes at once, make it easy and involve everybody, involve your manufacturing groups because they'll thank you later that you didn't give them something really difficult to implement. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks everybody. And to the audience, if you have labeling challenges, give us a call. It's hard to address every scenario here because there's so many, it's so complicated. Go ahead, Steve. Thanks everybody. Yeah, thanks for attending. Um, thank you to our panelists and moderator too. Uh, you'll receive an email with the recording by tomorrow. And as usual, the episode will be published to our Device Advice podcast by early next week. Our next Archim Plus live show will be on June 2nd, and I think it's gonna be a particularly valuable one. Clinical Evidence versus Clinical Performance, a deep dive into MDCG 2022-2 uh, and Notified Body Expectations. So please bring your questions to that one, and you can register by visiting the link I shared in the chat earlier, or by taking a look at the Knowledge Center at archimplus.com. Um, also a little Archim Plus Alpha for you, we'll be having a representative from a Notified Body join us for a special IVDR themed show. Uh, on June 9th. Uh, we won't have a registration page until next week and can't quite share specifics yet, but please keep an eye on our Knowledge Center or our LinkedIn page, uh, which I also shared a link to in the chat uh, to know when that's announced next week. So thank you for attending again today and we'll hopefully see you again very soon. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.